of Thrones Season 6, Episode 4, Book of the Stranger, is over. But we're just getting started here on the Game of Thrones Book Club Podcast here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler. Normally, we are joined here by Terry Schwartz of IGN.com. She is away working. She is, if you've been following her on Twitter and on Instagram, you know that she's been hanging out in New Zealand with hobbits and such. It's really, really cool. So she can't be here. We have a very, very exciting, excellent fill-in host this week who has actually been on the Game of Thrones podcast, the Game of Thrones Book Club podcast before. Uh, She is the book club co-host for our Walking Dead book club shows that we do here on Poster Recaps. Really psyched to be finally, this is a long time coming, Jess, digging in to some Game of Thrones conversation with the great Jessica Lees. Jess, what's going on? Oh, I'm very excited, Josh, mostly because we didn't end this episode on a cliffhanger about somebody being dead. (laughs) Yeah, it's really been kind of the the formula for when you and I talk about shows. Uh, it's like some yeah, really some is. sort of really awful, rotten cliffhanger involving somebody being dead or mostly dead or ambiguously dead. Uh, this was pretty decisive. Uh, and we could have even been talking about Game of Thrones with that stuff. We certainly could. Yeah. Uh, so, Jess, how's it going? Jess, this is just fun because you and I, we've talked a ton about Walking Dead. You and I, once upon a time, were going to be talking about Game of Thrones on a podcast alongside Antonio Mazzaro over the summer, last summer, that because of an awful internet connection got demolished and never recovered. Uh, and so now we are finally getting to get our Thrones nerdery on. I'm very, very excited about this. I have many opinions. <laughs> many opinions. All right, so let's just start diving into it first. We'll talk about Book of the Stranger, specifically everything that's going on in that episode, for sure, throughout this podcast. I'm very curious to get your take on the season overall, Jess, because you are a big fan of the books. You and Antonio really co-piloted that hard home book club podcast last uh, last season. It was really, really great stuff. So excited for your opinions. Just to set it up for everybody else, in case you wandered in here by accident, the Game of Thrones Book Club podcast is the podcast where we talk about Game of Thrones from the perspective of people who have read the books, the A Song of Ice and Fire series, George R. R. Martin's books. Anything from there is fair game on this podcast. So we will be doing a lot of forecasting into the future, trying to read the tea leaves based on what we know from the books. If any of that sounds scary to you, get out of here. Uh, I am assuming that you are all now gone. Jess, give us the hot take. What are you thinking of this season so far? Um, I think this season is so much fun. And I think, honestly, this may be a controversial opinion. This is a vast improvement over the books, specifically over, like, the last two books. Because I feel like we're... We've cut out a lot of the filter. We a lot of the filler. We started to tread water quite a bit, especially like around about book five. There was a lot of stuff I just didn't care about. Yeah, and we're just like glossing over huge swaths of George R. R. Martin's prose. We're just saying, okay, we don't need this person to hang out here. We're just going to put them over here, and I'm loving it because it's moving forward and stuff's happening and we're finally getting to find out a little bit of what happens next. Yeah. We talked about this on the book club podcast last week, Terry and I, when we talked about the new sample chapter from winds of winter and I was really, you know, struck in reading that it was the first, you know, 
it was the first new ice and fire material I had read or anyone had read, I think, in about a year. Um, and I was really struck just by like the quality of the writing and the wording and the way that he strings phrases together and just like sort of the beautiful, beautiful imagery that he paints with his words. And that was really the pleasure to me of reading that chapter, less so about the story, which was really cool. And I feel like that's really my main appreciation for the books right now and what I'm really mostly excited about when we finally do get into book six and book seven, whenever those books finally come out. But I mean... The world is the way that it is, and HBO has a really massive money-making show that they have to produce. So we have to live in this world where Game of Thrones is outpacing the material in Martin's books. I think that obviously things are going to play out pretty differently between the two things. But it, how cool is it to like finally be seeing like the Tower of Joy and knowing that like we're inching really close to some sort of R plus L equals J reveal probably this season? Like that's just really like on a very deep nerdy level, extraordinarily exciting. Yeah, it's super super exciting, and I got to point to a moment in this week's episode that was just like watching two Starks on screen together for the first time. Yeah, in you know since season three for the, for the show. And like, since the first book for the books, practically it's really like infinitely more heartwarming than anything that has happened in any of the books up to this point. (laughs) You know, what do you think of this? I mean, we talked about this on the live show a little bit. Was this the happiest episode of game of Thrones ever? Absolutely. It was just like, I, I feel like I've been building up to this. It was almost tantric. Because I've been building up to this for like a decade at yeah. this point, practically. It was good. It was very good. Uh, it was. It was. You know. It was like it was emotional. You were. I. I mean. I was definitely on the verge of tears watching that scene. Um, and it's not gonna. You know. That's not gonna play out in the books. Sansa is nowhere near John. Although I guess you know the fact that Littlefinger is marching north right now on the show maybe makes you wonder: Are they going to get there? And certainly that's part of the plot is to you know get Sansa in control of Winterfell. So maybe there is going to be some sort of collision between John and Sansa in the books, but it's further off. And the fact that we got it here on the show and the way that we did really was just such a powerhouse moment. Yeah. Yeah. And of course there's also the point that, uh, technically speaking, Jon Snow still dead in the books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel about how, (laughs) how do you feel about how all of that played out on the show? I think it's a foregone conclusion. He'll be back in the books as well. I guess technically we don't know for sure yet. Um, but in terms of, you know, we've been, we've been living with that cliffhanger since what, 2011 when that book comes out. So we've been really wondering for a long time, like, how do you get Jon Snow back into the game? How do you get him back into the story? Did you like the way that the show handled that? I think it was okay. I mean, there were several different ways they could go with it. There was, there've been a lot of theories, a lot of speculation, kind of three different directions. You can take it. You can have Melisandre do it. You can have him warg into ghost. You can have, you know, you can have him turn into a white, but I thought this was the most expeditious way. And again, this points to the show's just like, well, we need him to not be dead. Let's make him not be dead. Right. And granted, everybody's a little nonchalant about this. Like, you just saw this guy get stabbed to death by a horrible 10-year-old boy. Yeah. And nobody's, nobody's like, weirded out by the fact that he just kind of got back up like nothing happened. Everyone is really chill about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess they don't want to make him uncomfortable, but <laughs> it's just like, like, oh, hey, Jon Snow. I would, I would love to get a scene of like Tormund and Ed talking, being like, 
hey, can we talk about? And Ed's just like, I know. Oh, this is so weird. Yeah. Some sort of like conversation behind John's back. Like what are the, you know, what are the small folk of the, of the Night's Watch saying? Like what are the, the, you know, the, the new recruits thinking of this being like, man, some weird shit happens here at Castle Black. Yeah. We, we need a lower decks episode. That would be good. Yeah. (laughs) But can I just say, how amazing is it that we're getting more Ed? Because Ed was always one of my favorite minor characters in the books. Yeah. No. Like, and Lord, I, Lord Commander Ed? Lord Commander Ed, like, I would have been that one person that voted for Ed when they were having the election. Like, <laughs> stray vote for Ed. <laughs> I would have been that stray vote. And I would have been, I'm super excited to see him stepping up to the challenge now. And you know, the more Ed, the merrier. He is a little bit less deadpan, a little bit less dry than he is in the books, yeah. but I'm just happy he's there. I love that he's there. I love that, you know, it's sad that, like, you know, Pip and Gren are gone. Um, I remember in the moment when that happened in season four, I was just like, no, I love those guys. I don't want them to die now. They're not supposed to die now. And I still miss them, but I'm really glad that at the very least, we have Ed on the show. I think that he's really great. Uh, ben Crompton, who plays him, uh, feels like he's just a really, it's a really good matching. Again, like, he could be drier, but I think that his sense of humor is really funny. I like when he was... Um, a couple episodes back when he was like, uh, if your eyes changed color and all of that stuff. Um, do we know, is he Lord commander at this point? Is that official or is he just holding on to the cloak? I think he's just holding on to the cloak for right now. I'm yeah. sure they're going to, he's, he's like the interim president while they work on an election. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they're going to have another one and I'm sure he's not going to be totally jazzed to take it on full time. doesn't seem like, his kind of thing but he's like acting lord commander right now yeah i don't think that he's gonna be long term um and i wonder like are we are we now up to 999 are we up to a thousand now did alistair thorne did was he officially on board as 999 i know that this doesn't matter to many people but i do know that there is a contingent of fans who are like looking at that spot of who is going to be the 1000th lord commander of the night's watch and i've always thought that this is a fun conversation based on like book arcs and like where people are going in that story do you have any thoughts on that um well my one thought on that is i thought that when sam was doing all of his research um, down in the library he realized that there are large swaths of wall history that seem kind of glossed over and he's not totally sure if john really was number 998 and mathematically he said the numbers didn't add up right yeah, I don't know what he is. And you know how time is kind of weird yeah. in this universe anyway. Like, we don't know if the wall is, you know, a thousand years old or 10,000 years old. We don't know for sure, like, when, you know, when it went up and when the Andals came over and when the Doom of Valyria happened. Like, they didn't keep very good records. Yeah, the bookkeeping so skills leave something to be desired here in Westeros. Yeah. Yeah, and like even you read the World of Ice and Fire, which I still, you know, sorry, I have not gotten all the way through it yet. It's a um, big book. But the big book. Um, there's like, you know, even in the big book, like officially there are pages that have been torn out or like, yeah, you don't need to know about this. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I love it. And that. so it's, it's a little hard to 
yeah. Yeah. Um, so. All right. So let's let's dig into the episode a little bit more. Where do you want to start? I mean, there's a lot that goes on here. There's lots to talk about from a book perspective. Lots of storylines that are moving in directions that are harder for us to predict based on not having that material available. Like Danny is kind of in uncharted territory right now. Which story are you the most jazzed by, and which one do you think we really want to sink our teeth into from a book perspective? Well, from the one I think these are two different answers here because this the story development that I am most jazzed by, which should probably surprise nobody, although it did surprise me because I'm not the kind of person who watches a show and sees a meaningful look between two people, decides those two people belong together, and then is the captain of the ship from that point forward. But, oh my God, that happened to me. I am the biggest Tormen shipper in the universe right now. It is everything I ever wanted that I didn't know I wanted. So what are we calling this officially? Because we struggled with it on the live show. What is the name of the ship officially for Tormund, Giants, Bane, and Brienne of Tarth? I don't think there is one yet. Like People keep saying things. I think Tormen has yep. a nice ring to it. Tormien. But, you know, Tormien is one I hear. I've heard Bremen. I, I like Giants Brienne. Giants Brienne is pretty good. It just feels like the name and of a thing, like a ship. Like, it feels like you would sail it, on the gigantic ship Giants Brienne. You would, and it would go to no place but good places. <laughs> You know, because it is amazing. It really is a fantastic development. And I, what I really like about it is I don't think it was just something that Christopher Hivju, who's the actor who plays, I might be butchering his name, uh, who's the actor who plays Torment. I don't think it was just like a choice he made. I think that this was written in. Um, you know, the director, Dan Sackheim, he did a bunch of interviews last week. I got to talk to him. I wanted to talk to him about this, did not have the amount of time allotted to ask him these questions, but somebody else did. And I, th I think it was TV Guide, actually. And they interviewed him and they asked him about it. And he's like, I'm really glad that translated. Uh, you know, I'm really glad that that really played for people, that that was a thing that was happening. So that was very intentional. So it's not just like, you know, a subtle, funny joke that started getting created by the actors on set. The show, at the very least, is putting Brienne on Tormund's radar in a very big way. Yeah, I had read that they were honestly worried that it was too subtle and yeah. that people weren't going to get it. But don't worry, whole internet is on this ship. <laughs> and I just think the number one thing I think the show has done that has been an improvement on the books is the show knows what to do with Brienne. Yeah, totally. And this was maybe the most frustrating thing about A Feast for Crows was just like Brienne wandering around in circles and having this like lame ass cardboard Jamie Lannister surrogate Heil Hunt. Right, that guy sucks. Was yeah, that guy sucks. And you know, she's just gonna wander around until she like stumbles bass backwards into, you know, that might be the hound. We're not sure that's the hound. Oh look, there's Lady Stoneheart and she's pissed. And it just was endlessly frustrating because Brienne is better than that. And the show just said, okay. We're cutting all that out. We're just going to send Brienne up to the wall, and, you know, we're going to have her actually find Sansa, which apparently George R. R. Martin didn't trust her to do. <laughs> She's going to actually find Sansa, actually save her, and actually get some shit done. Yeah. And then she's going to go to the wall 
and some dude's going to look at her the way she deserves to be looked at. It's fantastic. <laughs> Do you think that Tormund has pure intentions? Do you think that he is going to be a gentleman in this situation? I mean, his reputation is a little startling. Oh, I hope he is not a gentleman in the best possible way, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> wow, you really are the captain of the good ship, Giants Brienne. Look, he gave her that look, and I swear to God, like, that's the kind of look that, like, I swear I saw that happen, and I got pregnant. <laughs> that's how it happened. <laughs> that's how it happened. The mystery of life has been answered on the Game of Thrones Book Club podcast. That's really fun. I, You know what? Someone pointed out, I'm going to try and dig up who sent this in as I'm reciting the general gist of um, of what was sent in to us on our feedback this week, but I thought that this was a really great point. You know, you talk about how the show knows what it's doing with Brienne maybe better than the books, and I like the storyline that she's up to in the book in terms of, I think that, you know, we got the Septon Maribold speech out of it, and, you know, we get the Quiet Island. I think that there's good scenes, but it is definitely meandering, meandering in a big, big way, and she has more utility on the show right now. This was from B.B. Payne, who had written in a really good point about what you're talking about with what's cool about having Brienne in Sansa's story. Uh, B.B. Payne wrote in, Hi guys, while listening to you talk about Brienne's Valyrian sword on the feedback show, I was reminded that Oathkeeper was made from Ned Stark's sword Ice. That means that Brienne used Sansa's father's sword to swear an oath of fealty to her. That's a pretty awesome coincidence, huh? Uh, And that's just like a beautiful little touch that I hadn't even thought of until this was brought up just now. Isn't that, that's a really cool note that Brienne is swearing fealty to Sansa using her father's sword. Yeah, that's, that's some really great symmetry. It's, I feel like maybe we were going to get there in the books eventually, but I love that. Yeah. I really like that, too. I think that that's really cool. Uh, And then hopefully that means that we're going to have some ice-smashing White Walkers action at some point in the not-too-distant future. That's always the hope. But here's another question. Yeah. Like, if we are cutting cutting Septon Maribald and we're cutting that whole Quiet Isle thing, and we have had some hints earlier in the season, like, not to jump around too much. No, go for it. We've had some hints We've had some hints that we're getting the Clegane Bull because we had confirmation that Robert Strong is the mountain. Right. And we had Cersei invoking trial by combat. And we had Arya Stark talking about the Hound. Yeah, I think Clegane Bull is a foregone conclusion, but I just don't know without that hint, how do we get there? Yeah, well, I mean, this is something that Terry and I talked about. Um, I don't remember on which book club, but some, you know, one of these past ones is... This idea that the Clegane Bowl, I do think, is happening, but I don't know if it's going to happen the way that people expect. Like, I don't know, I don't know how you get Sandor Clegane to be the champion for the Faith Militant. Like, I don't know what the mechanics are that gets him involved in that trial by combat. I think the trial by combat happens. I think the Mountain fights, I don't know, say Lancel Lannister, somebody destroys, ruthlessly murders somebody in trial by combat, uh, is unleashed, is let loose and all of that stuff. And I think you're eventually going to have to see the hound in the mix. And like, it's going to be like his, like, I have to retire from, you know, I have to, you know, withdraw from retirement and get back into the fight and stop my brother. And I think it'll be like a less organized Clegane Bowl than a lot of people are expecting. But I think that the show definitely, you know, maybe it is like that organized Clegane Bowl, but I think at the very least the show is putting us in a place where those two characters, they're going to fight and it's going to be cool and you ought to get hype right now. Uh, I'll board the hype train. 
all aboard the hype train and the Giants Brienne ship. Uh, they are part of, the, yes. they are manufactured by the same people. Uh, I don't know that we're going to skip the Quiet Isle stuff, though, because, you know, there is all this talk of Ian McShane is playing the elder brother and is probably involved somehow in bringing the Hound back to the show. So that makes me wonder, are we going to see Brienne leave this storyline? You know, is she going to be sent south? Are we going to get some condensed version of her Feast for Crows storyline eventually? Yeah, I or maybe she doesn't even need to be involved. The show has been very good at a couple of things that just took chapters and chapters. The show's just like they send some random character like, well, you need to be here, so you're going to go here now. Right. So maybe it's just as simple as like throwing some random character into the path of Ian McShane as whatever Septon guy he's going to be. Right. And he's like, oh, hey, look at this. I've got the hound. <laughs> That's exactly how he presents it. That's, you know, it's okay if they do a little bit of telling, not showing, because... Lord knows we got enough showing, not telling. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, all right, let's stick with the wall, and let's talk about something that has been a hot topic that we haven't been able to fully delve into on any of the other podcasts this week. Mm-hmm. But it was really, really cool to see the pink letter, the show's version of the pink letter, Ramsey Bolton writing his vicious note to Jon Snow. Um, or was it Ramsey Bolton? And, you know, that's one of the big question marks. Is it, And it's been one of the kind of, I think, undersung theories of the past few years stemming from A Dance with Dragons that some people have been batting around, but I don't think it's talked about a ton, is did Ramsey write this letter? Is Ramsey the author of this letter against Jon Snow, or did somebody else uh, author it? You know, one of the theories that I've heard the most is that Stannis Baratheon in the books is the guy who writes it with assistance from Theon after he has Theon captured and he's using Theon's knowledge of Winterfell and Ramsay to kind of phrase things for Stannis and it's all part of a ruse for Stannis to get Jon Snow to march down from Castle Black toward Winterfell and join the fight and help him out and help him really finish the Battle of the Ice. Um, But you, before we got on the line here, Jess, you threw out another one that I hadn't really heard before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, The one that I had heard most often was that the letter actually comes from Mance Raider. Yeah. And we don't have eyes at at Winterfell at this point um, because the last pair of eyes we had in Winterfell was Theon, and he was kind of preoccupied at the time. Um, But there is strong evidence to suggest, like, almost everyone in the world thinks that Mance Raider is dead at this point. And, you know, on the show he is dead, but he's very much still alive, apparently, in the books. And he has gone to Winterfell disguised as a bard. And the popular theory is he came in disguised as a bard with his spearwives and you know, took over Winterfell and wrote this letter and has sent it to Jon Snow for the purposes of drawing him out. Um, and there's plenty of evidence, like these two letters, the letter on the book, the letter on the show are very, very different. Right. And what are some of the notable ways that they're different? Well, basically everything that is asked for in the letter, in the books, we can't really provide because it's all different. Like half of these people are already dead and, you know, I have, um, I actually found an article on Tech Insider that has the full text of both of the letters next to each other. So you can kind of, if I had to guess, I would say we are being set up in the books to 
have that letter not be from Ramsey, yeah. but I think it's fairly clear that show letter is definitely from Ramsey. Yeah, I mean, we've been, you know, we've been talking about this, um, is the Great Northern Conspiracy happening on the show right now? You know, this has been one of the topics of the past couple of weeks since small John Umber showed up and brought Rick on and Osha to Winterfell, and some people were really latching onto the idea that, like, this is the Manderly thing. We're going to get some fray pies in the mix. Like, we're, we're seeing uh, the North rebel quietly against Ramsay, and this is the start of it. Um, and I think a lot of people still are hanging on to the theory that the Umbers are somehow involved in the writing of this letter. This was something we got from a, a reader named Eric who says, is it possible that the letter John received from Ramsay was actually sent by the Umbers? Hear me out. It seems like a terrible move for Ramsay to provoke John like that. I got the impression that Ramsay intended to take the fight to John at Castle Black, which makes sense. Castle Black has little defense against an attack from the south, and a surprise attack by Bolton forces would almost certainly succeed. Sending John that letter is incredibly stupid because it gives him incentive to gather an army and provides a powerful persuasion tool, the captivity of Rickon, to rally the northern houses together behind John. Say what you will about Ramsay, but I don't think he's stupid. And didn't the over-the-top insults and graphic details in the letter sound more like someone trying to do an impression of Ramsay? The key giveaway, I think, is the overuse of the word bastard, a label that Ramsay is rather sensitive about. So is it possible that the Umbers have double-crossed Ramsay by giving him Rickon so that the northern houses would turn against the Boltons, then mailing John a letter to incentivize him to rally the north against Ramsay? The only major flaw with this theory I can see is that Rickon is in true danger. Maybe the Umbers have a rescue plan in place. Very interested to hear your thoughts. That last caveat is really the big hang-up for me, Jess. I don't know how you reconcile Mm -hmm. that with everything else. Yeah, I think... I mean, I think it, the only person it could potentially be from, if it is not from Ramsey, is the Umbers. Yeah. And we got, like, just enough. Like, Mike Bloom and I, when we were podcasting about Orphan Black, we used to joke that anytime there was a character on screen and they named that character, you had to pay attention because that character was going to come back. Okay. And it sure seemed like we spent a lot of time like setting up who the umbers were like, Hey, remember these guys, they were in season one and Oh, look, this guy's back. And Oh, hello, you know, small John Umber. And Hey, look, you've got Rick and Stark. It it seemed like they spent a lot of time on that, um, for that not to have some meaning about who brought him back. And it also does seem like the North, you know, there is still a pretty big faction of people that would rather have a Stark in Winterfell. Yeah. Um, and it's true that the bastard thing, that's a pretty big sticking point in the books as well. It is. Like, he hates that term, and he's not necessarily going to throw it around on other people because it could come back on him, and he gets pretty pissed off when that happens. So. Yeah. I'm kind of liking this theory right now. Um, and one of the big hang-ups for me, on top of, like, Rickon's in danger, is, you know, there was a, there was a rider from House Bolton that shows up to Castle Black to deliver this message. Uh, and I was like, so obviously that's Ramsey. Like, doesn't that bust all the things? Well, how easy would it be for, you know, someone who is loyal to the Umbers to be wearing, you know, the, the sigil of the flayed man and all of that and to have that person go riding to really kind of reinforce the fiction? Um, so I think that you could take that out. I think that there is an explanation for that. Um, but what's the explanation for putting Rick on an OSHA in so much danger. I guess with OSHA, it's kind of like, 
like from Umber's perspective, it's like, what's one wildling, you know, for the cause of the North to rally around a Stark. But the Rickon one is the really scary one for me. Like that just seems super reckless. Yeah, like how many appendages has Rickon lost already? Like he's been there, what, you know? A few days, days at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there are some details in here that really smack of, you know, they smack of things that only Ramsey Bolton would really want to talk about in detail. Like, right. I don't know how known it is at this point that he likes to feed people to dogs. Yeah. And he's made a careful point of that. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of like who would know that. I mean, people who are really close to Ramsey at this point gotta know that that dude loves the dogs. Uh, and you know, especially that one poor maester who, you know, helped deliver Walda's baby. Who's like, um, you know, was really not happy about everything that happened there. Maybe he caught the end of it. Maybe he's in the loop. Um, I think that there might be something here and especially if they do have some sort of escape strategy for Rickon, maybe there's something that you could buy here with the fact that, uh, the umbers are involved in this. I don't want to close the door on it completely, but I think that they're going to really have to have a really good answer for why Rickon has to be there, um, for this plan to work because it is such a gamble. They must be really invested in the idea that Jon Snow will definitely come down and they can rally behind him. But that being said, Jon Snow just died. And, like, it's really miraculous yeah. that he came back to life. But they hitched their plan. They would be, you know, pinning their plan on a guy who really should not be here anymore. Yeah, apparently that news didn't travel very fast. Yeah. It really is like, amazing how whoa. casual that's all been. Yeah, you know, to the traitor, bastard, and dead guy, Jon Snow. You know, and <laughs> off chance that that weird red lady brings you back. Here's what I want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bring her, too. I like her. I want to talk to her. Uh, yeah, well, he does ask for her in the in the book. Yeah, yeah. He says, like... One of his yeah. many demands. Yeah, he's like, uh, tell the red woman. Uh, or I think he uses harsher language than that. Uh, But I think, you know, if we are to assume or at least start entertaining the notion in the books that um, that the letter is a forgery, uh, it's worth it's worth at least entertaining on the show for now. And I think that uh, Eric brings up some pretty good compelling points for why it could be House Umber. Um, So I'm I'm uh, I'm in on that. All right. Let's talk about another thing, unless you've got anything else on pink letter stuff. Um, no, I just, I think I would like a little more setup on that if that's who it's going to be from. Agreed. But yeah, but I'm not ruling it out either. Yeah. I think that they, you know, they can still, you know, there's still some work that they can do there. I think you bring up a really good point too, that they spent a lot of time on that scene. Um, you know, they've really, you know, really made a meal out of that umber guy. Uh, so I think that we'll, you know, and I think it'd be really heartbreaking for the readers. Not that the show tends to care about that too, too much, but if we're suddenly <laughs> making like the umbers like out to be like this really kind of shitty group, that would suck. Uh, so I think yeah, I can see it. I can definitely see it. So this is, um, let's, let's turn toward John a little bit. Um, let's talk, let's talk about John and his parentage. We start to be, you know, we think that we're getting closer to an R plus L equals J reveal. Bran was at the Tower of Joy earlier in this season. Uh, it seems like he's going to find it out. And a lot of us have been thinking like, that's probably how we're going to learn that on the show. But Podrick Racer had a thing that he wanted to float out. Podrick Racer says, do you think it's possible that John will learn about his parentage? 
footage from Howland Reed. It seems like the show wouldn't want us to find out this information before John does, so maybe on the way to Winterfell, John could come across Howland Reed. What do you think about that, Jess? Because Howland Reed is on the show. We saw him in the flashback scene at the Tower of Joy. Yeah, yeah, kind of horribly miscast, Howland <laughs> Reed. He's supposed to be a tidy little Craddock man, and he's like this lacrosse playing looking, you know, douchey white dude. He's jacked. Yeah, he's he's kind of jacked. Um, I think it's totally possible because if you think about it, like this is where we found every member of the Reed family. We're just kind of out wandering around between Winterfell and the Wall, and oh, the Reeds are going to find you, right? Yeah. So I could see that happening. Sure. Yeah, I think that you know, introducing we we might maybe we're looking at the wrong things when we're looking at that Tower of Joy scene. We're like we're, that's on the show now because we're going to see Bran go back there and figure that out. Uh, maybe we should be paying more attention to how and Reed just being present on the show, like laying eyes on that character, um, and it being emphasized who that guy is like he's not just a throwaway character on the show he doesn't have to be name checked unless he's like fairly important to the overall thing and we do know john is marching south we do know that john is going to try and go after winterfell and rally the forces and and rally the people in the north we know that Howland reed has history with ned stark we know that he was there at the tower of joy and very likely knows about john snow um makes sense to me that he could be the guy to give us that information yeah, yeah, and you know, maybe John doesn't want to go directly to Winterfell in the first place. He doesn't have enough men, so maybe he wants to kind of do a little circuit, like right. you know, go visit Bear Island, you know, go visit the Manderleys, go visit House Reed, get those guys together, yeah. rally some people. Yeah. So over the course of that, maybe that's how he hooks up with Helen Reed, and we've had the setup in the Tower of Joy, like see that guy, that douchey white boy, he knows some stuff about Jon Snow. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that they do better when they're casting the regular Howland Reed, the modern day Howland Reed. Yeah, modern day Howland Reed should be, you know, it, I, I'm surprised we haven't heard about any like name actors playing roles we have no idea about at yeah. this point. Um, Jess, what did you think of the young man who played Ned Stark in the Tower of Joy sequence? I thought he was fantastic. Um I thought I was very surprised. I had heard a little bit about, you know, these are the actors that were present. I was surprised that he was playing young Ned Stark, but he really seemed to channel him very well. Yeah. He, his voice is like, it is like a young Sean Bean. He grew up in basically the same exact area as Sean Bean, I think like 30 minutes away. So he just like sounded like a young Ned Stark, which was really cool. Yeah, I, I thought it was fantastic. He's that kid's going places. Yeah, but if you if you do a Google search for the actor, uh, he is often like even even now I think uh, a lot of Howland Reed images pop up. So I think a lot of people <laughs> did think like, oh, this guy looks a little Cranic Manny. Uh, that guy looks like he could be he could be a Howland Reed. Yeah, well, you think of the Reeds as kind of having a little bit more character to the face than the guy we got. Yeah, I think so too. Um, all right, let's move on. Do you want to talk about the Iron Islands? Um, I never want to talk about the Iron, <laughs> Iron Islands. Well, like, that was my biggest gripe about books four and five was like, why yeah. are we spending time on this? And when the show completely skipped over it last season, I had held out hope that we would be maybe just we're done. Just, maybe we're just going to be done with it. Yeah. Maybe we don't care. Yeah. And I will say this. 
there's no Victorian Greyjoy. So I was just going to say. There's that, yeah. at least. Yeah, he is a pretty awful guy. Uh, we've, got, we've got enough awful guys on this show. I don't think that we need Victorian. But what, what have you been thinking, you know, in terms of the show's handling of the Iron Islands? Because I don't disagree, especially in the books. Like, it, you know, the whole Kingsmood sequence takes forever. It takes <laughs> so long. It's just ridiculous. Um, but do you like that the, the way that the show is approaching any of this stuff? I feel like even if you're not a huge Iron Islands fan, you, gotta, you had to have enjoyed that Euron Greyjoy scene, you know, the introduction of him and killing uh, Balon Greyjoy. That was just really, I thought, really done tremendously well. Yeah, although it does kind of in the books, the, I think one of the popular theories is that Balon Greyjoy is killed by a faceless man. Right. And I kind of missed that, but I did like that. You know, he really does establish him right off the bat as kind of a badass dude who's going to do anything to get what he wants. And I like that it's setting up a power struggle that's going to be very interesting. I like that Theon's there, which he is not, I do not believe, in the books. And I think that's going to cause some interesting dynamics. Um, frankly, I'm going to be okay with it. The King's Moot looks like it's going to take no more than 10 minutes in the next episode. It's not going to be like the book equivalent of the speech at the end of Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> which is like 60 pages and no paragraph breaks. And like people talking about political structures i get it george was kind of stuck on like how does this stuff all work okay fine i don't need to know about it like i i think 10 minutes on the show is going to be plenty you can internalize that you you don't need to tell us every single detail uh but i'm curious about how it's going to play out with theon there um you know in the books uh, Yara or she's Asha in the books you know she is obviously she's pitching herself as queen of the Iron Islands and we know that Victorian he wants the job as well and then Euron swoops in and takes the deal on the show Theon who is not present in this storyline at all in the books here he is he's backing Yara he's backing his sister got to assume that you're not putting Euron Greyjoy on the show to make that change where he is not suddenly going to become the ruler of the Iron Islands I think that that feels to me unless you disagree pretty clear that Euron's going to take over this thing yeah I think I think he's pretty much it's pretty much a given that's what's going to happen but it's going to be interesting to see what they try yeah at this point well are you worried for Theon at all? Because in the books, Theon is with his sister right now. Um, they are in the custody of Stannis Baratheon. Uh, it looks a little grim for Theon. I think that there's, you know, there's some ideas that like, is he about to get executed? Is like, is, is that where he's headed in that storyline? Um, is he going to prove himself to be useful in another way and get a stay of execution? Or is Theon's story close to ending in the book? Um, could you see this not working out well for Theon with him here with Yara, with Euron doing what he's doing? Are we going to wipe these characters out, or do you think that there's still more for Theon to do? I think there's got to be something more for Theon to do because he caused so much that he has not been redeemed for. Yeah, I think it's good to kind of send him off to be with his family for a little while while we sort some other things out. But if he does not have some kind of reunion with the Starks, where he performs some kind of act of self-sacrifice to get him firmly back on the side of good guy. And I'm not sure, maybe arguably he's already done this by helping Sansa escape, but I think there's more for him to do in the greater universe. So I don't think, 
I think he's going to get probably cast the hell out of the Iron Islands because he backed the wrong guy. But I think he's not he's not in imminent danger. Well, let's let's throw this out. Let's let's play with this idea for a little bit. Alex Kidwell, great Alex Kidwell, had written in a theory. Um, he says, I guess the fact that a King's Moon is happening but the Griff and Young Griff buddy comedy is not, might tell us some things. Can we go ahead and lock in a Greyjoy-Targaryen alliance at this point? And if so, how can it last, given the huge discrepancy between what Euron believes and what Danny believes? Um, so in the, in the first episode of the season, the fleet in Marine is destroyed. We don't have that. The Greyjoys have lots of ships. Uh, they might even have Giants Brienne. It's possible that that's part of their fleet. Uh, they have all these ships in the in the books. The Greyjoys are sailing to Meereen. They're going to be a big part of whatever battle is happening there. But it's Victarion there, and he is the worst, and he is awful. And we hope for his <laughs> we hope for his super fiery death to be imminent, uh, to you know really occur very early on in the Winds of Winter. But he doesn't exist on the show. And for me, I think a lot of what I'd been thinking was like, all right, so that storyline is still going to happen. The Greyjoys are still going to go to Meereen. It's probably going to be your on there instead of Victarion, and maybe it still will be, but does Theon go along for that ride, and is Theon's story going to get intertwined with Daenerys's? The, you know, that didn't even occur to me, but that makes a lot of sense because I do think that Euron is meant to be sort of a Euron-Victarion composite right. for the show. Um, and yeah, they got boats, which Daenerys don't got. So I could see, I don't know what Theon's role would be in all of this. Uh-huh. Whether they just like boot him and like, yeah, peace out, we're going to Marine. I don't know what you're, you're going to do, but it ain't that. Or if they bring him with. But yeah, what, what is your pitch? I don't know why they would bring him, but let's just say that they do. Let's just say Euron has some affection for his nephew or something like that. He's like, come on, let me go show you the world or whatever. Uh, in the books, the Victarion story there is, um, he's, he has a red priest on board, right? Is it, I think his name is Makoro, if I'm remembering yep. that right. Um, and a lot of the, you know, there's lots of suspicion that that guy is like totally effing with Victarion and is planning some sort of betrayal, some sort of awful thing. Uh, we expect Victarion to lose and not be successful there and for Danny to then conquer those ships and set sail for Westeros with them, whether she rides on Dragonback and, you know, sends everybody else on the ships. Um, what if Theon is taking on that role only in the sense of he is going to be responsible for some sort of betrayal of Euron and that's going to clear the way for a Danny victory over the Greyjoys. And now she has a new ally in Theon and the Greyjoys who are now loyal to Daenerys and they sail back to Westeros. Yeah, maybe. I, that presupposes that Theon's got it together quite a bit more than he appears to at the moment. Yeah, he needs to work on that. <laughs> yeah, he's got a lot of growing to do. And, you know, he needs to get, you know, he needs to get a, a maester with, like, the psychology link in his chain <laughs> to talk to him a little bit. <laughs> maester Shrink. Yeah. He yeah. Need, he needs one of those for sure. What about Yara? Is she just going to be wiped off the show, or do you see her being involved in that storyline also? Well, I think wherever, I think for the short term, wherever Yara goes, Theon goes. Yeah. Like, I think the pair of them are either getting mixed up with, you know, King Euron, or they're getting booted out to go and 
go off on their own adventure and team up with somebody else. Right. So I don't know which it is at this point, but I think the two of them are kind of intertwined at this point. I would not be completely astonished to see Yara Greyjoy get killed. I don't want to see it happen, but I wouldn't put it past like it, the show like making the statement about Euron him becoming king and then doing something terrible to Yara. I hope not. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I they've already kind too, of abused but... that character a little bit. I feel like she's so much better in the book. Yeah, she's she's a total badass in the book, and here is just like she kind of hangs around moping in the castle. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think it's impossible. I, I guess we'll we'll see. All right. Well, we've already been talking a little bit about Danny. Let's talk about Danny herself in detail. We talked about this on the feedback show a little bit. Actually, is like what has been the reaction from book readers to this scene with Danny? Because Danny is, you know, only it's a one-time deal in the book that she is miraculously impervious to fire. And George R. R. Martin made that explicit during an interview. Said, "Don't expect that to happen again." Here, it's like her superpower on the show. She's fireproof. Did you like the scene as a book reader? Or were you annoyed by it at all? Because I really liked it, and I haven't heard from anyone who didn't. Well, I honestly, I wasn't annoyed by it. I thought it was great. I thought it was it was a great way. And, you know, maybe George kind of wrote himself into a corner by telling people she was one and done with that fireproof business. Right. Like, maybe if he just said, okay, you know, fire doesn't hurt her. Cool. That might have gotten her from point A to point Z a little bit more quickly instead of having her, you know, in the middle of the Miranese knot. Yeah, she could have burned I'm just through saying. the knot. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, I I didn't hate it. I thought it was a great way to get the Dothraki behind her, which I imagine has been part of her end game for quite some time now. And I'm pretty sure that the reason that we get a book every decade now is because George R. R. Martin himself has written some rules that he can't get himself out of to get her to that point. And the show is just like, ah, eh, screw it. She burns everything yeah. down and stands in the middle of the fire and she's not burned and everybody thinks it's cool. She's fireproof. Yep. Yeah. She's made of asbestos. <laughs> That's so weird. How is she walking yeah. around? Uh, magic. Sentient, you know, it's- sentient asbestos. <laughs> Sentient asbestos. Hey, you know, it's a world where winter can last a decade. People can be made of asbestos. I like it. I'm a fan of that. Uh, all right. So Danny, she, you know, she rallies the Dothraki to her cause by the end of episode four. It takes her four episodes to handle this. It's going to take like six more books for her to be able to figure this out in the novels. You got to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Like how long how long is that story going to be? Because that's where we last left her in dance as she's surrounded by Dothraki and you don't really know what's going to happen next. Do you think that she's going to be really tied up in that storyline for a while? Or do you think that the pace of the book might match the pace of the show? Um, you know, at this point, if I were if I were him, I would just have the next scene be her looking up at the at the cow and being like, yo, I'm the Khaleesi and everybody else being like, all right. Because at this point, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know that he even knows what he's going to do. So, yeah, I I think we could get something. We could get some very, you know, we could yada yada over some stuff. Yeah. Um, do I think that's what he's going to do? Probably not. Do I think he could do that? He absolutely could. And, you know, it would save him a lot of stress. 
so what's the next immediate move in the Danny storyline? She's got the Dothraki. Dario and Jorah are with her. Tyrion is running shit in Meereen, and people are not thrilled with what he's doing with the whole slavery thing. You've got to imagine that Danny's not going to love that either. Where are we going with this story? Um, I think she's got to come back through and like fix what Tyrion broke. Uh, Because you know what? Political moderates, they don't get anything done, right? Um, (laughs) But, you know, she's got 100,000 Dothraki warriors. That sets her up pretty well. If she can get them into the water, that sets her pretty... She's pretty well set up to start thinking about her Westeros plan. But they're scared of the water. They are scared of the water. They're feared of it. And she doesn't have any boats at the moment. So these are hurdles, but these sound like things that Tyrion could be better at than, you know, enacting slavery policy. Yeah, I think so, too. You know, get him on procuring boats. That sounds like something he'd be good at. Boat to tail. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. We'll see. I don't know. I, I, I feel like... I, I I feel like I've set myself up to really think that Danny is on her way to Westeros at the end of the season. Um, but thinking about, like, the mechanics of it, you do, like, you've got to figure they're sending the Greyjoys, they're sending the Iron Islanders over to Meereen. I think that that is lining up with the fact that the ships are burned down. We're up at episode five now, so it's not impossible that they could get there by the end of the season. But is she on her way back to Westeros by the end of the year, do you think? Or do you think they're going to stretch that out one more year? Well, we've only got one more season after this. I think it's very possible the last scene we are left with in episode 10 is Danny coaxing 100,000 Dothraki horse lords onto some boats. Yeah. I'd be down and, like, with that. Sailing off into the sunset. It'd be great. I'm good yeah. with that. Like I'm good with it. I'm good with the season taking that long to get us there. Like I can handle wrapping up Meereen this year and focusing on that and like having that be an arc this year. But you gotta untie that knot by the end of season six. You know, I think that you know they. Ha- I don't think they've settled on exactly how they are going to parse out the remaining episodes. They talk about uh, you know seven episodes one year, eight episodes the next. Uh, it seems like it's going to be somewhere between 10 and 15 episodes remaining after season six, uh, probably across two years. And I, I really think that by that point, Danny's got to be got to be getting back there. Otherwise, we're really looking at the clock and wondering what the hell is going on. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that's going. Um, anything else in the Meereen story that you're interested in? How about the fact that Dario uh, now knows about Jorah's grayscale, which is the John Connington story of the books? Where are we going with this? Um, I think I think we're going to see Jorah play like he's got one more key thing to do. I think it's like Theon. He's got one more key thing to do before he bites the dust. Right. And he's going to bite the dust in the most noble and self-sacrificing of ways. And he's actually going to move the plot forward with his meaningful death. Um, but I don't know exactly where this fits in, except that I feel like someone has to know about the cootie spot in order right. for the cootie spot to remain relevant. And so we had Dario witness it. Is he going to tell Danny? Oh, I think he's going to thread to tell Danny. I think that's very much in his wheelhouse. He's probably a big fan of the blackmail. He's like, hey, you know, Jorah, maybe you should be on board with things I want to do, or I will tell Danny about the cootie spot. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, that's a very jerky thing to do, but Dario's a little bit of a jerk. 
Oh yeah, I mean that's all. That's entire the entirety of his appeal. Yeah, is that he's a little bit of a jerk. Yeah, I mean I'm curious about like what's the overall importance of Grayscale? Is it just a, a character driving thing? Is it just going to be a thing that pushes Jorah to a point where he does something and sacrifices himself, and that's the end of the Grayscale threat? Or as it's kind of being sort of set up in the book with Connington bringing Grayscale to Westeros the way that he's doing it, I feel like there's a little bit more of like outbreak anxiety in that storyline is there going to be anything like that here on the show do you think i could be i think i think it could be realized like i think he makes it to westeros and i think it's he could certainly be seen as a public health threat yeah um i otherwise you know i guess it could be that its sole function is to give him a reason to you know, be a little bit more motivated because he certainly was not for a while. Right. He was kind of drunk and sad for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like I could continue being out. drunk and sad with this dwarf. <laughs> um, or I could have a very limited amount of time to actually make a difference and actually help who I think is the rightful queen to get onto her throne. Yeah. You know, he wants to see that happen before he kicks it. Yeah, that's what he said. He's like, I want to see her conquer the world. But I don't know if he's going to get that far, but he can at least help push her push her to the thing. All right, well, she, you know, if she is the queen of Westeros, she will be hanging out in King's Landing. Let's go to King's Landing for a hot minute. I don't know if there's too much to talk about with the King's Landing storyline, although good friend Maester Goldner had written in and said, does the High Sparrow's shoe basically invalidate the theory that he's Howlin' Reed or even anyone else that we know? This has been one of the popular, I think, Valyrian foil hat theories that have, that have been out there, that the High Sparrow is either Howlin' Reed or somebody else in disguise that will reveal themselves eventually in the books. First off, do you buy into any of that? And secondly, does this shoeliloquy invalidate those theories? Um, I could see why people put on the Valyrian foil hats in this department because this did happen to us once, and I think it made everybody decide, oh, well, if Arston Whitebeard can be Barristan Selmy, then anybody could be anybody. Yeah. Anytime there's a new character, maybe it's a character we already know. And They've the done fact that a few that times, you know, like the, the whole yeah. rattle shirt and Mance Raider thing. Yeah, I bail the bard, he's Mance Raider, right. and yeah, they he keeps doing it, but the thing that's hard to do is you can't really pull that off on the show, because you know what the actor looks like, right? and it's like, oh, it's pretty clear, you know, that is, you know, the actor that plays Barristan Selmy, and he's wearing a weird wig, you know, that doesn't work so well, so they cut that out entirely, and right. I think... Having him have this secret identity as Howland Reed would feel really cheap. And I think I think the High Sparrow is what the High Sparrow is. No totally. more, no less. I think I think he's, it kinda cheapens the yeah. character if he's somebody else. Yeah. I don't think he's got an ulterior motive. I think he wholesale believes everything he's selling. I think that's part of what makes him him. He's selling shoes. Or used to. Yeah. He's selling the lack of shoes now. Yeah, no shoes. Yeah, it's a fire sale. Um, yeah, I think I think so. But it looks like the story is coming to a head pretty soon, uh, which is cool. 
because, you know, King's Landing is really in turmoil in the book right now where we don't really know exactly what is going to happen next. Things are really on the cusp of popping. It's a little it's almost a little worse in the book because Kevin Lannister and Grandmaster Pycelle, they get killed. Um, that hasn't happened on the show yet, though. I'm kind of feeling like Kyburn might take that role that Varys had where Varys, you know, sends the, his little birds to do the job. Now that we know that Kyburn is hanging out with these little kids, couldn't you see Kyburn, like, going to Kevin Lannister, or especially Pycelle, who hates Kyburn, and filling in Varys' spot on this story? Yeah, I definitely could. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure Kevin is not long for the world. Yeah, he's got to go eventually. Yeah, he, he's, definitely, he's definitely the weakest link. Yeah, goodbye. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where we're going with any of that. But it looks like, you know, the fact that like, we're rallying the Tyrell forces together and we're going to march them against the Faith Militant. And you got to imagine Robert Strong is going to be in the mix there. So I feel like, you know, some sort of, you know, Game of Thrones version of like a nuclear bomb going off in King's Landing. I feel like we could be getting pretty close to that, which would be a game changer. Yeah, it definitely would. And, you know, honestly, I remember reading that epilogue that's, the you know, the death of Kevin Lannister. I'm like, oh, was I supposed to care about him? <laughs> I think it is much the same thing in the show. Like, oh, that's supposed to be my big dramatic beat that leaves me wanting more from the next book. Um, the death of Kevin. Okay, fine. It's a, it's a fair yeah, point. Yeah, it's got to be bigger than that. And I think the show knows it's got to be bigger than that. So, yeah, Kevin's toast, but so is a lot of the rest of King's Landing. So is, like, every power structure that's in place right now. Yeah. You know, it, it's going down. It's going down. Uh, Littlefinger returns to the show this week. He is going to be marching north. Uh, we see in the preview for next week that he is already going to reach uh, if not, uh, yeah, he's going to find Sansa. So he's, you know, past Winterfell at that point. How does Littlefinger travel so fast? Um, I'm not actually sure. I mean, he's aerodynamic, maybe. Yeah, he's <laughs> just really, really, really nimble. I mean, my guess is that it's kind of they meet at some kind of halfway point between the Vale and the North. Yeah. Like, that's got to be it. And, you know, there's a certain point, the autumn storms are in. He's not going to be able to take a fast boat for very much longer. Yeah, I think that's so, going to be tough. Yeah, it's going to be a little tough. Um, uh, maybe he's got a really, really big raven. I <laughs> I wouldn't really know. But I'm what I really want to see happen next week is I want to see Santa knee him in the groin. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah, that's the only thing I'm wishing for next week is I want... I want Sansa to, like, at least slap him because he needs to be slapped. He is begging to be slapped. How, how, does that, how is that reunion actually going to go? Because Littlefinger is coming up there offering help. They need help taking over the North. Um, are the, is this going to go smoothly? Is it not going to go great? Uh, you know, the slap would be satisfying, but will they move past the slap and then work together? Is Littlefinger going to be an ally here for the next little while? Well, he's got lots of armies. Like, the Vale has pretty strong guys. Um, I would guess, like, we've seen a little bit in the previews for next week. We see Sansa actually confronting him, unfortunately not inflicting any violence on him, but at least saying, hey, you know, when you fixed me up with this dude, did you know he was a violent rapist that feeds people to dogs? Right. And you don't get, you don't get his response there. But... He is Littlefinger. If anybody's going to have 
a way to talk himself out of this. I think Littlefinger is, and they do need all the help they can get. So maybe it's like, yeah, here's how you make it up to me. You take us back up there with all the soldiers in the world, and then we feed him to the dogs. Yeah. Uh, that would be really satisfying to have Littlefinger eaten by dogs. But I don't want it to happen yet, because I really like his presence on the show. We need, we need to, we need to yeah. drag that out a little bit. Uh, let's keep looking ahead at a couple of other things from the preview. Um, I think one of the, there's really two interesting things that I want to dig into with you is there's going to be a new red priestess in town in Meereen. We saw this in sort of the trailers for the greater season six already. Um, but it looks like this scene is going to happen next week where a new red woman is showing up in front of Varys and Tyrion and talking about you have knowledge, but you don't know the full power of knowledge or something like that. Um, it seems like, you know, it seems like the red priests are being really kind of more, more and more prominent on the show right now, obviously with everything that happened with Melisandre earlier in the season. But even in Meereen, we saw a red priest, you know, preaching the good gospel of R'hllor, um, with Tyrion and Varys seeing that, you know, silver fox dude talking about that stuff. And now we've got another one coming in. What's the deal with all this, do you think? You know, is, is this going to be, is, is this a really prominent storyline that we are getting into with the Lord of Light and its influence in, you know, several different places in the world of Ice and Fire? Well, we, on one hand, we know it works now. Yeah. Like, we know whatever R'hllor has going on, like, some there's something to some of it. But, you know, she could just be stopping by with some brochures. You know, she's got an issue of, like, the Red Watchtower. She's just, yeah, she's just <laughs> recruiting. <laughs> Excuse me, sir, do you have a few minutes to talk about our Lord and Savior, the Lord of Light? <laughs> Tyrion is not going to want to have that conversation. Yeah, Tyrion's gonna, his next move is going to make that illegal. <laughs> He's like, no solicitation. Yeah, none of that, please. Get that out of here. Uh, so I don't know, but I mean, one of the theories that I really like, I know a lot of people don't love, and I, you know, every time I think about it more and more, I get more excited about the possibility of Tyrion Targaryen. Uh, could this could this push us in any way? Closer to that with some fire magic in the mix. Now that Tyrion is also hanging out with dragons, could this be some person that pushes us toward that kind of a reveal? Or are you completely out on Tyrion Targaryen? I'm not completely out on Tyrion Targaryen, but I would be sad to lose the irony of Tyrion being, you know, his father's son in like every possible way. And his father, like ironically, you know, not being able to acknowledge it to the point where he ends up getting murdered. I love that idea that, you know, has been hinted at in the book several times back in A Storm of Swords where, you know, you have Tywin Lannister talking about what a disappointment Tyrion was to him and right. how, you know, he's nothing like him. And it turns out they're very, very much alike. And I would hate to lose that dynamic. I thought that connection was so interesting and you know ended so sadly that to find out that Tyrion was not actually Tywin Lannister's son would be a big disappointment yeah uh, and but then, I see where they. I see where the evidence is going. Yeah, I think that I. I think it could happen. I think. I mean, I think uh, not to get into the edit too much. You know, we don't want to talk about those edits these days. Uh, but I feel like there is enough that's just been dropped on the show um, and in the books 
that we're at least, I think, meant to be thinking about it, or we are all just so crazy that we can't help but think about ridiculous things like this, and that's where theories like Tyrion Targaryen are born. But I feel like, at the very least, A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones shore up enough paranoia in uh, its readers and viewers that these types of theories emerge. I've heard so many weird tinfoil hatty theories so about many. who is a secret Targaryen. I know. I've heard Varys is a secret Targaryen. Well, I mean, I do buy that one actually. Uh, I I do. He does shave his head? I, well, I buy into the I buy into the Varys Blackfire theory. Uh, that's a that's a podcast that we would we would be here for like another forty minutes, and I would have to do two days of prep before we could really really get into it. But you should do some reading on it. I, I really think that there's something yeah. compelling. To, to Varys being a Blackfire and, um, you know, the that young Griff, that Aegon Targaryen is not Aegon Targaryen and he's a Blackfire. Uh, that whole theory is really awesome. I don't think any of that is coming anywhere near the show. I think Varys is a lot more straight up on the show than he is in the books. All right, final, final thing. Um, this is uh, the closer of the preview. Uh, Alex Kidwell wanted us to talk about this brand and the Night's King. It's real. It's happening. Preview shows it for this Sunday. How excited are you and what are your speculations about this scene its meaning and significance and where it's going to take us going forward well is bran really there or is he being taken there the same way he was at the tower of joy i would guess the second because uh, he's standing yeah. and unless something really great happened uh you know he's probably not standing in real life Hey, Knights King's got powers. Yeah, so whoa, that would be cool. People's eye color. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool, yeah. Yeah, he's like, I've gotten, uh, uh, well, let's talk, man. I can, I can make you, I can get you walking again. We could be friends. I think what we're actually going to get, like in all seriousness, we're getting a scene where, you know, Bran's being taken by the Three-Eyed Raven to witness some other event, and it's going to be some kind of Knights King origin story. We're going to get some details on the Knights King, but we're going to stop short of anything really useful and interesting. And Three-Eyed Raven's going to be like, nope, that's enough for today. Let's go. Wake up. I think that uh. that is the theme of the season, is Three-Eyed Raven showing you almost enough to be useful. Yeah. Eventually, we so got to like get some useful information, though, right? Eventually, you would hope so. But, <laughs> you know, we could drag this out a really long time and, like, Where's Bran going to go? He can't walk. <laughs> yeah. He's just a captive audience. Yeah. But how these scenes have been so cool. Like, you know, even if we're not getting, you know, mic drops at the end of each one, just like the idea of like going back to Winterfell and seeing baby Ned and seeing Lyanna for the first time on the show. And then the Tower of Joy. Yeah, it's not the full version, but we're still seeing the Tower of Joy. Now we're going to get Bran like spooking in on some of these White Walkers and who knows what kind of information he's going to get there. I feel like leaving season four, and I remember this because in the Throner Awards, people voted against Bran Stark and were not interested in that storyline at all. Then he's missing for all of season five and you're kind of forgetting about him. Here he is on the show in season six. And for me, outside of, you know, everything that's been going on at the wall and in the north with the John and Sansa and Ramsey stories, I think the brand stuff is really, for me, very easily the second most compelling thing on the show. And it's kind of competitive for the first. Yeah, yeah, because he's finally, like, they're using it to his advantage. Like, this is kind of making up for the fact that they totally biffed the House of the Undying. Right. Oh, God, like, I screwed that up. Yeah, like, they're taking some of those hints, and they're giving them to Bran, and they're giving him, like, things to look at. And it's, you know, 
it's another one of those things where I felt like the book was dragging it out forever. And this is at least like, you know, if he's not going to do anything himself, at least he can go out and we can fill in some of these chunks of backstory that we don't have any other way to provide otherwise. And it could be really cool. Like for seeing him with the Knights King, what if we're witnessing like the origins of the wall? Like how cool would that be? Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> It'd be really, really yeah. cool. Um, yeah. It's really, you know, because I think a lot of people are like, is he going laterally? Is he going into the future? Is he seeing something that's about to come up? Uh, but I hadn't really considered that it might just be like straight diving into the past and seeing like some really ancient White Walker stuff, which could be extraordinarily cool. I mean, all the options with Bran hanging out with the White Walkers next week, to me, seem like it should be a really good time at Game of Thrones. Yep, he's getting... He's getting a degree in history from the University of Three-Eyed Raven. It's not bad. It's basically what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's not bad. I don't hate it. I don't hate it at all. All right. Anything else that you want to hit on while we're here, Jess? Anything else from Game of Thrones that we haven't talked about yet uh, that you'd like to sound off on before we sign off? Um, no, I'm just feeling like I'm enjoying this season so much. And I feel like there's so much to talk about and so much to take in and process and I love seeing the forward motion. I love that we're actually going somewhere and yeah. we're getting closer to some kind of cataclysmic confrontation between all kinds of people that you don't even, you didn't even picture in the books. The show is bringing them together. And if the books end up being totally different, I am completely cool with that. Yeah, me too. hundred percent. I think I've said it before. It's like, it's like you get to witness it twice. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I think it's a, I think it's a really good outcome. I mean, I think the best outcome would be we've got those books to read right now. That would be great. Uh, but given the reality of the situation, I think when those books come out, I think that the reading experience there is still going to be really sublime. And at least for right now, we are getting things moving forward in a really fun way as well. I think the show is on fire right now. I'm really enjoying it. I know not everyone agrees, but I'm having a really good time with the show right now. Yeah, I would even go so far as to say I think the books, I think not having the books as a crutch has freed up the show to do some really cool things. And I think maybe the books were dragging them down. Mm. So now that we've surpassed almost all the book content, I think the show is better. Yeah, I think, you know, that's that could like that could sound really sacrilegious to some people, but I get what you're saying. I mean, they're making the show now, you know, they're not adapting a thing Um, and like they've got the the language of their show established across five seasons that was by and large pretty faithfully, um, you know, ranging from like moderately faithfully to super faithfully adapting material from the books. And now they just get to make the show based on the material that they've already built. Um, so it, like now more than ever, it's really useful to look at the two things as different beasts. It's always been useful to do that, but right now is super useful. And I think if you can really separate them out, it really makes watching the show a really fun time. Um, so yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. So I can't wait to see what we get next week. Yeah. Stuff's going to happen. The plot's going to move forward. We're going to get closer to funding everything out. And we know that for sure. And that is the exciting part. It is exciting. All right. Hashtag time. Uh, Giants, Brienne was a early front runner. I really liked sentient asbestos. 
<laughs> that's nobody's gonna have that one. But I don't think so. It, then in my mind, I was thinking like asbestos would be pretty good as well. <laughs> asbestos, yeah, I like that like too. That, that's gonna be the rebranded Westeros when Asbestos Danny conquers Westeros. It's gonna now be called yeah, Asbestos. When it gets destroyed by dragon fire, what's left <laughs> is asbestos. So let's do that. Let's have that be the hashtag A-S-B-E-R-S-T-O-S. Uh, I think I just spelled that wrong. A-S-B-E-S-T-R-O-S. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jess. Oh, it's still wrong. <laughs> at, at, least somebody, at least somebody here can spell. Oh, my God. I don't <laughs> All right. Jess, great job. You totally crushed it here. Follow Jess on Twitter at HaymakerHattie. I'm at Rand Howard. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Game of Thrones book club. Subscribe to what we're doing. Postshowrecaps.com slash GOT iTunes. If you're Walking Dead fans and you haven't heard me and Jess talking about Walking Dead, we started our Walking Dead book club for this half season of season six, which is now a few weeks over. We will kick that back up when Walking Dead returns. That's a really, really fun show that Jess and I do. And especially because much like Game of Thrones right now, the comics of Walking Dead and Walking Dead proper, the show are really different. So it's always fun to dig into that. Uh, The main difference between Walking Dead and Game of Thrones is right now, Walking Dead's not doing so great. (laughs) Yeah, no. Um, I I heard... um I heard hot stinking dumpster fire. Yeah. Yeah. The last episode of Walking Dead. <laughs> it was it was tough. It was tough. I'm enjoying some time away from the Walking Dead. I'm looking for you know, I'm looking forward to getting back into it, but I think I, I really need that summer off. So we'll see how it goes when it comes back. Uh, Jess, great stuff. We will talk again soon. And everybody else, we will be back next week with another book club. Take care everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>